This week on Mind Matters, the story of a son's suicide as we continue our conversation with Linda Pacha. That's coming up on Mind Matters. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. You cannot define yourself in reference to other external coordinates. You must define yourself internally with your relationship with a higher entity. Stop it! S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. This week on Mind Matters, it's time to turn down the noise and listen to what really matters. Join counselor and author Rita Schulte and me, Richard Beatty, in renewing your mind, because your mind matters. So come on in and join us. Right. Yeah, big mistake. My husband told me the same thing. I could never, I could never go through with it because I could never live without you. And, and that's what people need to know is that um, it can happen in any family. That's why we all need to know the risk factors and warning signs for suicide. And it's not that your loved one is lying to you. It could be for several reasons that they say that they could feel like they're a burden and they don't want to burden you. They can actually feel like, okay, I'm going to get through this. So, you know, they're talking themselves through it um, or they're go- cycling up and down in emotions and feelings. And every time you ask them, or if you ask them, like for me, it was just that one time, maybe he was on an up and he thought, yeah, I could power through this, not realizing that you need to tell somebody if you are having suicidal thoughts so that you have a safety net below you. And that's where I think, you know, that I try to explain to people it can happen in every every family, know the risk factors, warning signs, and understand that your loved one can look you straight in the eye and tell you that they're fine oh, and throw you completely off the scent of even thinking that it could be suicide. And then they can turn around and do it. So they so, so take us through that that final morning. So, okay, so uh, we talked all weekend, and then Monday morning, um, he had class, um, and uh, we were in the hotel room together, and he was actually in a, you know, I got him to the point where he was actually laughing a little bit, he was feeling good, and we were talking back and forth, and, but he did say, you know, what if I'm gay, and, uh, you know, my husband had called also, um, so we were all, all of us talking. He said, what if I'm gay? And we're like, Nick, you don't have to figure any of that out right now. We'll love you no matter what. And we talked about how his sister would probably get married and have a bunch of kids. And he'd always have, um, you know, he'd always he'd always uh, be an uncle and always he wouldn't have to, a moment's peace. He'd always have kids in his house and all that. So if he didn't get married and have kids, it would he would still have a very fulfilled life and everything. And and it basically I was trying to share with him that, you know, Nick, you don't have to figure this all out right now. You're just he had just turned 19. Mm-hmm. And that life would unfold the way it's supposed to unfold. And you don't have to worry about this now. But he just didn't think that he fit in this world. I think that he had a mental health problem that was beyond depression that was just unfolding, which is another another thing people need to know it, is that at the age of 18 or 19, that is kind of a critical period where within brain development and that a lot of mental health issues start coming forward around that age. I wish I would have known that. 
Um, but uh, so we talked about this, uh, all these things. And then um, he was going to go to class. He set out a little schedule uh, for, for for me to let me know that he was going to go to class from, you know, from this period of time to this period of time. Then he was going to work out afterwards and then he was going to go to tutoring and then he was going to grab a dinner and then he'd come back to the room, which was a little odd because, you know, I was there. I'm, I was surprised he wanted to go to the cafeteria to eat a meal, but I thought, okay, well, maybe he wants to talk with somebody there. I, I just didn't, I didn't really put two and two together. What he was doing was making a schedule for me, showing that he was busy so that I wouldn't go looking for him. I think he had already made up his mind that he was going to take his life and he wanted to give it time so that I wouldn't be, you know, searching for him or anything like that. So, um, when I saw him, I mean, um, he left for class. I hugged him. I said, I love you. You know, I'm so proud of you. You're so strong. And he turned to me and goes, I am strong. And he was, he literally with a hop and a step walked down to the elevators of the hotel room. And, um, I later saw him, I, I went to go to, um, he he, before he left, he wanted, he talked about maybe going to Jamba Juice to get a gift card for somebody. And I said, you're running late for class. You know, like moms do. I was like making sure he was going to get to class. It was the last few instructional, instructional classes before finals. And so I said, um, why don't you do that afterwards? And then I thought, hey, Jamba Juice card, that's probably a good thing for him to have so that he could get a, a smoothie when he's studying for finals. So I, I, um, went, got him a smooth, uh, I went to Jamba Juice to buy him a card and I turned around and he, now this is, uh, this is at a time when he should be in class already. And at the front counter of, of the Jamba Juice, he was there and he, um, he had discussed, he was like bent over showing the Jamba Juice, um, girl behind the counter, his IDs his school ID and his driver's license and said, Oh, Oh no, I'm not, I'm not stalking you. You think I'm stalking you. And the girl's like, no, I don't think you're stalking me. I don't think you're stalking me. And so I didn't know what I walked in on, but it looked like confusion and it was all on Nick's part. There was some sort of misunderstanding. And so I, I said, um, Nick, I could tell that she didn't think that he, that he was stalking her. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'll figure this out. Let's get him to class because he should be there. This is the last few classes when, when the, the professors are giving their instructions for the finals. I said, Nick, go to class. I will, I will talk to her. She doesn't, but she doesn't think that you're stalking her. And so he turned around, looked at me and, and then left. And um, I think he went straight from there to, to, to a bridge right, right downtown Minneapolis. I said to the Jamba Juice girl, do you think that he was stalking you? What, like, what's going on? He's the nicest guy. He would never do anything like that. And she goes, oh no, I don't think he's stalking me. Not at all. Well, what, what she told me is that they had, they knew each other, but not really well. And that they would study at the same places a lot of the times. And I think she kind of liked him. And he said to her when he went there for, he didn't listen to me. He went there for the Jamba Juice card. Um, he didn't go straight to class. And uh, he said to her, um, oh, I saw you over here studying instead of over there. And she said, oh, what are you, my stalker now? 
jokingly, flirtatiously, right? Yeah, he missed that cue. But that, again, is Asperger's that yeah. where you take somebody literally. Mm-hmm. And she thinks that he went to class and was so bothered. Again, this is my son who's so righteous and like so such a good person. He thought, oh, my gosh, I got to go clear this up. And that's why he was giving the IDs. So I was right there. And he's and I shoot him to class. I literally shoot him to class. Saw how upset he was over this whole. I had never seen him that upset. And I sent him to class. And so I had to deal with that afterwards. You know, that was like, oh, he slipped, literally slipped through my fingers. Why didn't I just grab him, sit him down and say, let's talk about this. Forget about class or take him to to the um, you know, counselor right then. Or, um, But you didn't think that he was suicidal. Didn't know that the bridges were within walking distance. Um, didn't know that there was a history of people jumping off those bridges and students jumping off those bridges. And I think a lot of people after a suicide can do this to themselves. They oh, without could haves, should haves. Yes. And I didn't. I, I have to say that afterward, I you know, it bothered me for for a while. You know, and I would, but not too long because I realized, Hey, I was a good mom. I was there. I flew out there. I tried everything that I thought I could do to help him. And, um, you know, we do not have a crystal ball in our hands. We're right. not born that way. We're human. And, um, you know, so I have let that go, but, uh, um, it is, it is always hard for people after a suicide. So do you think that the bullying was a huge part of why he took his life? Yes, I do. I think that the bullying, it was a a combination of things. I think the bullying added stress to his life and it was ongoing for years. So it just, um, I think this is very typical for people when they have this uh, ongoing stress it creates a hole and it's like a burning gaping hole that gets deeper and deeper and it becomes a mortal wound, you know, and it can lead to something like suicide. I think it was, um, it added to his loneliness, his feeling of not belonging. Mm-hmm. I think that he felt betrayed by people by, by being so cruel to start a rumor. And especially when it was so close to the end of school here, he couldn't even clear that up with people. They would be leaving to go home for the summer and this would just be sitting out there. It was just a cruel thing. Yeah. So I do think the bullying did mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. And caregivers, you know, they usually don't know how to walk through all of this. I mean, it's certainly uncharted territory. Uh, they're scared. A um, lot of hard questions. You know, you've shared you know, the whole dilemma about counseling. Should we force them? Do we take them to the ER? I know I did that with Mike. Uh, How do you feel about that now? Uh, If you were to give someone a word, another parent, what would you tell them? About the setting, about counseling? Yeah. I would would say you, you can't force somebody to go. You just can't force them. And I 
would try to sit down and reason with the person instead and try to um, explain that when you have a good relationship with a counselor, that they are helping you. They are helping lift the burden off your shoulders, helping you to work through your emotions and your feelings. Um, And it could be a very, it's mostly a very positive thing, but you have to have the right match. People need to understand that if their loved one is not having a good time at counseling, that it may just be not a good match and they need to find somebody else um, in the mental health field that can fulfill all those things for their loved one. Um, So I do think it's very, very important for counseling. Uh, I think that kids are afraid of that, especially high schoolers. Uh, I think that even going to the counselor's office in school, they don't want to be seen because of the stigma of that. So I wish that um, high schoolers can have the ability to go online. And I think through COVID now, we have done that, where you can go online and even have counseling that way without being seen in a waiting room for for a kid that might make the difference of them going and not going because as teenagers we all you know they always have these magnifying glasses over their their head thinking that everything is so big and you know everybody's judging them and this might just make the difference to have them go yeah sure and there is so much stigma and fear and confusion around mental illness uh, around all not just for the teens that have walked this, but for suicide loss survivors as well, we deal with the stigma. How did your family deal with that piece? Was that difficult? Did you feel people, you know, judged you, didn't want to talk to you, kind of walked or looked the other way when you were walking by? In the beginning, it was hard because we felt the stigma without anybody even having to say anything about it. We thought that we were going to be judged left and right. We knew people who knew us wouldn't judge us because they, anybody who knew us knew that my husband and I were given 110%. They'd see us riding bikes with the kids and taking them here and doing this and that. So we knew we weren't being judged by people who knew us, but we, um, we definitely knew that, we would be kidding ourselves if we thought that we weren't being judged by people who didn't know us. And I think that why people judge is because suicide is such a scary thing that they want to distance themselves from it. So they look at parents, say Tom and I, for example, and say, oh, they parented like ABC and we don't do that. So we're, we're safe. It will never happen to us. Or their son, Nick, was X, Y, Z. Our little Billy is an X, Y, Z, so we don't have to worry. It won't happen to us. So that judgment is fear-based, and it's to separate themselves from something that's so scary, at least in their minds. And so I understand the judgment. So in the beginning, when it first happened, you don't even want to go out of your house for groceries because you don't want to be answering these questions. It's just very difficult because you're still figuring it out for yourself. Like what happened, this this huge thing happened in your life. We didn't even know how to answer the questions or anything like that. So that was part of the stigma in the beginning for us was just how do you answer those questions, especially like how many kids do you have and or, you know, um, or in the beginning, like what happened to Nick, though, that was the stigma there. Uh, but 
to and them. And were you forthcoming with that? Did you guys say? Absolutely. I, I, I have my whole life. I've always been forthcoming because I figured if it could happen to us and we were really doing our best as parents, it could happen to anybody. And if there was anything I could share from advice to offering up our mistakes and our missed warning signs, anything, then if I can do that and save a life or have help somebody, then as a human being and as a Christian, I know that that's the right thing to do. So I've always been forthcoming with that. And if somebody wants to judge me on that, go ahead and then, then judge me. We've been through a lot worse, right? Sure. Um, it is easy to judge somebody in hindsight, you know, when you're looking at after the fact, but people have to understand that even when I read, when I write, you know, when I look at my book and I look at all the missed warning signs, I even look at it and go, oh, kind of roll my eyes and go, oh my gosh, they were all right here. Right. But that's not that's not how life unfolds. When you are working with somebody and living with somebody and trying to help somebody that has a mental health issue, you are in the trenches all the time, helping them, helping them. So when you, when warning signs surface, you don't see them as red flares, uh, you know, big, big red flares of warning. It is Tuesday. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's another day for you. So that's why um, you know, I named the book, I titled the book Saving Ourselves from Suicide because it's saving ourselves. We all have to look out for one another. And sometimes if you see it in another family, if you see missed warning signs, you need to share that with the family. And I know that would be very difficult, but they can be too close to their loved one and love them so much that they're missing the warning signs because they're trying to see them in the best light. Yeah. Well, like when Nick gave away those clothes, right? Um, it, you know, it was, he told us, hey, it was because he wanted to help people. You want to see your loved one in the best, in the best light where he, he very well could have been suicidal then when he was give, when he gave away some of those clothes. Mm-hmm. What about your daughter? How did she deal with this? Because siblings are often called the forgotten mourners. My daughter and my son were two years apart. Kelly is two years younger than Nick. And they were not only siblings, but best friends, which made it especially difficult when she lost a big brother um, because it was her, her, her best buddy. They shared, they went to the same schools together. They So, she was devastated, um, like the rest of us. And in the beginning, she was feeling guilty about not answering his text that last weekend because she was busy being a 17 year old. And it was just about time for junior prom. And she was doing the things that 17 year olds do and was not aware that this was so crucial of a time. She was like the rest of us just didn't pick up on it. Um, so in the beginning, there was some guilt that she was going through um, and she was devastated. But then after I would say it wasn't very long uh, within a first month or so, maybe she just picked up and act and, and all of a sudden looked like she was moving on with her life. Like nothing ever happened. And my husband and I just kind of looked at each other, like what is going on with her? Like, 
weren't sitting there sobbing and, right. and trying to get through our stuff, our grief, and, and, and it looked like Kelly was just moving on. And then we later learned that this is very typical for um, children, for teenagers, even young adults, because their brains aren't fully developed, they can only handle so much trauma and so much um, tragedy at once. And then they shelve it, they, they suppress it, and it will, and it's delayed grief, and it will come up later in chunks. And that is exactly what happened with Kelly. Um, she started then having some of it surface freshman year in college. And when, uh, when it first happened, she had a good support system at school. She had girlfriends, close girlfriends. She went to a small Catholic um, um, college preparatory um, uh, high school. So the kids were close with one another. So she had a good support system there. But what, what was happening is that some kids, and even kids that graduated would call her, when they were in college and they would share with her that they were having mental health issues thinking that oh okay now she's been through her brothers she knows more than the average uh, person that age and a few even shared that they were suicidal one boy in particular shared that he was suicidal himself and my daughter and my husband had to go there and uh, to his house and knock on the door and, and and tell his mother which was very awkward and terrible what they what people didn't understand was kelly had so much on her plate the last thing she needed was to be trying to field all those um all those problems with everybody else you know it was it was just too much yes absolutely she's not to be the counselor but the good news was support network that is vital for healing for suicide loss survivors support network, you know, grief therapy, trauma therapy, if necessary. A lot of good helps. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Richard, anything in closing? Uh, it occurred to me that uh, one of the things, and when you talk about the signs, unchecked grief uh, is one of those uh, one of those signals, isn't it? If you can recognize the grieving process, and we have a culture that's going through a grieving process. When you think of post-Roe, all those people that are yelling and screaming, they're going through the anger process. So you look at this, we have a country that is in grief right now. I completely agree with you. For so many reasons, they are grieving right now. I, I really appreciate you sharing your faith, but, uh, but also in that context uh, that uh, you have been through and the trauma that you've been through with losing Nick, I think the greatest thing that you can do is to tell his story and, and tell people that uh, it's a common story. It's something that, uh, uh, that is uni it's a unique story, yes, but it's also uh, something that we all uh, should be watching out for and uh, we can help each other and that's part of loving God and loving people is to Amen. to do this so thank you for doing that you're welcome and, and have them rely on their faith if anything happens or if they're struggling rely on your faith that is by far the thing that got me through um, Amen. Process. me too no question and, about and, it and trusting God 
that even with the unanswered questions, that that he's loving and he's good, and we will understand when we get to the other side, he will explain the bigger picture for us, and that's faith. That's right. Thanks for telling your story. Thank you for being on Mind Matters. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. That's Linda Pacha on Mind Matters. I just wanted to also say that Rita Schulte and I had a conversation uh, with Linda Pacha about that cycle of grief and the signs of grief, denial, escapism, anger, and depression. Today, we continued that talk and and the aftermath of suicide on friends, on family, and extended family. For more on this subject and others, please visit RitaSchulte.com. That's S-C-H-U-L-T-E. Mind Matters is a Sound Century presentation and a Crawford Original radio program. For more information on our programming, email us at SoundCenturyPresents at gmail.com. That's SoundCenturyPresents at gmail.com. I'm Richard Beatty. And for Rita Schulte, have a great week.